Welcome to ERGS in Equilibrium, a podcast where we discuss recent papers in energy and environmental economics. ERGS in Equilibrium is a joint initiative of the Canadian Association for Energy Economics and the Ivy Energy Policy Management Centre. My name is Brandon Scheifley. I'm an Associate Professor of Business, Economics and Public Policy at the Ivy Business School and Director of Ivy's Energy Centre. Today, my guest is Richard Sweeney. Rich is an Assistant Professor in the Department of Economics at Boston College, where he does research on energy and environmental policy. Today, Rich and I discuss his paper, Secrecy Rules and Exploratory Investment, Theory and Evidence from the Shale Boom. This research is co-authored with Thomas Covert. Rich, welcome to Ergs in Equilibrium. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me uh, here, Brandon. Uh, Excited to talk about this research. So I'm excited to have you here. So this paper is about information disclosure policy and how that affects investment efficiency in non-cooperative settings with information externalities. Can you provide us a bit of a big picture on what you're trying to achieve with this research? Sure. Um, The big picture idea here is um, in environments where there are informational spillovers, this uh, is going to induce free riding among non-competitive actors. Okay, so um, there are actually lots of applications outside of um, energy which I'll maybe touch on later. Um, but I think it's actually easiest to understand if we just think about it in the context of searching for oil, looking for oil. Um, and so what you should have in mind is imagine um, two people, it could be me and you, uh, and imagine we just own leases right next to each other. And this is shale. So imagine there's no common pool problem. Okay, so the idea is that we both have drilling opportunities. We don't know what is under the ground. We don't know how productive the rock under uh, our leases is, but we know that they're identical, right? So if I see you drill and you get a very productive well, I know that I will have a very productive well, and there's no common pool problem to make things simple, okay? In this environment where we don't know uh, what we'll get, um, but we know if one person gets a good outcome, the other person will, and it's very expensive to drill like it is to drill an oil well like a modern shale well costs on the order of five to ten million dollars in this environment i would prefer uh, for you to go first right and the idea would be if i could wait and i knew you were going to drill first if i have the opportunity to see what you uh, get for example if the well is very productive or not i could observe that and then decide to make in my investment decision later Okay, and the idea is if the well is terrible, I can save myself 10 million bucks. And if the well is good, then I know it's a good investment and I will, you know, get the same outcome you get. And this sort of behavior is going to induce uh, what economists call free riding, which is basically just the idea that um, I would prefer you to make an investment so we can learn about it. You would prefer me to make an investment so you can learn about it. And in equilibrium, both of us are going to go too slow or maybe not invest at all. And we will get a social under provision of uh, valuable information in this context. It's how, how good is the rock underneath us. And so this sort of uh, free riding has been demonstrated in other settings as well. Classic examples are in real estate development. Um, so in Boston, I don't know, you know where I live, uh, the biggest area of development has been on the waterfront in the South End in the past decade. You know, a decade ago, there was not much there. Um, a lot of developers um, had uh, their suspicions that there was big latent demand. If you put a bunch of hotels there, people would go. But no one wants to be the first one to take out million do- millions of dollars of loans and build that hotel first in case there isn't really demand for some reason. Another um, classic example, uh, which I talk about more in the paper, is um, medical trials, 
Okay, so imagine two pharmaceutical companies, they're exploring similar molecules uh, for totally different indications. And the first thing they wanna know is, is the molecule safe, right? And so that's you know stage one and stage two uh, clinical trials. In this environment where those trials are expensive, both would prefer the other firm uh, to do their trial first before they uh, set up a trial. I really like this idea. It's the idea that when you make an investment, there's really sort of this spillover and you have this incentive to wait. But if you wait, what are we losing? If we uh, wait, so what has the um, economics literature identified in the context of oil and gas? There's a classic paper, which is really the starting point for my research with Tom, uh, by Hendricks and Kovanok and Rand in 1989. Um, and he considered, he, that, and in that paper, um, they compare um, the environment I just talked about with you, which is me and you, we have two opportunities. They're right next to each other, but we don't cooperate. They compare um, equilibrium exploration behavior to what a planner would do, a social planner would do, uh, if, if the planner had uh, you know, both opportunities and they could make an, a socially efficient dynamic decision. And um, the takeaway from that paper is that you can get too, uh, that investment could be too slow. So if we care about money today, more the money in the future, and people are waiting, there's going to be a uh, time value of money loss, right? So we'll go too slow. That's one finding. Another finding uh, that happens uh, in that paper is that because uh, we can't share information and because we're free riding, you could actually get um, a situation where a planner would explore and would find that it was worth doing, but um, this you know, two actors acting strategically would not explore at all. So you can get an extensive margin loss of fewer wells in my example, and then uh, you can get a sort of time value loss that they go too slow. And so this delay can actually have welfare implications. Yes, to the extent that we, you know, care about the present more than uh, the future, or to the extent that um, there are valuable investment opportunities that won't be picked up by this decentralized uh, mechanism. And so you guys are going to study this phenomenon in the context of drilling in Pennsylvania and West Virginia. And you proceed in sort of two steps. You derive this theoretical model and then you empirically test some predictions that come out of this model. Why didn't you set up the model for us? Sure. I should, I should actually say, you know, I did a good job setting up um, the uh, first part of our motivation, which is um, if I could observe your outcomes, I will have an incentive to free ride. And like I said, this earlier literature and literature in other settings has documented um, that this leads to delay and uh, possible preclusion of investment. Um, a common policy response to that is like, why, you know, why do I delay in my example where I'm waiting for you to go first? The setup here is that if you drill, I can observe your outcomes and that's useful for me. A common policy response in many environments, not just oil and gas, not just medical trials, is for the government to allow firms to keep information secret, okay? And so the idea is if, um, if, in, our, if in our example, you're going to drill, but I'm not gonna be able to observe it, then that's not gonna affect my drilling decision and I won't delay, okay? So this sort of uh, policy, which we refer to as disclosure policy, is the government collects uh, information on investment outcomes all the time for health and safety reasons, for tax reasons. And then they have to make a decision about how much information should the government disclose to the public about your business practices. And there's a trade-off where we want to not disclose too much information uh, because that induces free riding. But if we keep information private, then we lose the social value of information, which is in our example, it could really be the case that you got a terrible well 
And if I know that information, it would save me $10 million. And if you don't disclose it, even though socially we already know that I shouldn't invest, I might. Um, so there's a trade-off here where we want to, um, you know, we want to um, protect against free riding uh, or maybe mitigate free riding, but we also still want to disseminate socially valuable information. And the lever that the policy that policymakers have uh, to sort of navigate this trade-off is uh, what we call disclosure policy, and that's the setup of the paper. And so what we have is a model where, um, in order to make headway, we're going to really just Take the example I gave you, uh, which is two actors. They own adjacent uh, investment opportunities with perfectly correlated outcomes. And they have two periods over which they can decide uh, to invest or not. At the end of a period, imagine this is like an oil lease. You have some finite time to drill. If you don't drill, you lose the opportunity. So this is actually building entirely off the setup of um, Hendricks and Kovanok. Um, in this game, actors are going to get signals about uh, what they believe the underlying rock quality is. So you've got some geologists, you've got some people doing seismic, you've got public reports. Everyone's going to look at the same data and get you know, a different uh, sort of interpretation of how valuable the investment opportunity is. Okay? Um, then you're going to have to decide in period one, do you want to invest or not? If you invest, um, there is going to be a, a policy called disclosure policy where the regulator is going to decide, uh, is going to reveal to your rival that the outcome or the returns to your investment were above or below some threshold. So the easiest one to think about is uh, what we're going to call uh, full disclosure. And imagine the regulator gives you exactly the information you need in order to make a drilling a decision, which is they tell you, are the returns positive or not? Okay, uh, we consider a continuum of, con of uh, disclosure thresholds. Uh, so I'll get to that in a second. But the idea is you're going to invest uh, or you're going to decide whether or not to invest in period one. Um, your rival is going to do the same thing. Now imagine you don't uh, drill in period one or you don't invest in period one and you get to period two. What's going to happen? Um, if your rival invested, the regulator is going to tell you, was it a good or a bad well? Was it above or below some threshold? If your rival didn't invest, you have another decision to make, which is you got some information, not about how good or bad the well is because your rival didn't invest, but you learned something about their signal, right? So if you didn't invest and your rival didn't invest, this makes you a bit more confident that your interpretation that the rock is not great is probably your rival's interpretation too, and you might not invest, okay? So you get the second period decision to invest or not, and then the game ends. And what we work out in the paper is equilibrium um, drilling probabilities. So how good does your signal have to be to drill in period one and period two as a function of how you know, useful is the disclosure from the regulator? And so what do I mean by that? The most useful thing the regulator can tell you is are returns positive or not? And if you know that, you can make an efficient decision. Now imagine the regulator uh, gives you a less helpful um, uh, disclosure policy where they just say, are the returns uh, less than or, or, or greater than 100%? Now, that's obviously an awesome investment. So if, if it's above 100%, uh, you know you want to do it. If the regulator says it's not, uh, it's below 100%, you know, it still could be positive uh, or it could be negative. And so that's a less useful piece of information. And kind of the intuition here is as the regulator increases the threshold um, above which they're going to reveal was it good or bad. That makes the information you're getting less and less valuable. 
and that makes you less and less likely to free ride or it makes the returns the the ability to free ride smaller and so we see behavior of different states we see variation yes. in disclosure policies at uh, across different states and Pennsylvania and West Virginia have very different disclosure policies. Yes. What are those policies? Okay, good. So the motivation, so this is a funny paper. So Tom uh, Covert, who's a professor at um, uh, Chicago Booth, Booth and I uh, we have a bunch of research together. Um, all of it is empirical. Neither of us are theorists. And uh, we came to this question doing research on oil and gas uh, during the shale boom from the empirical observation that across U.S. states, they have different disclosure policies. Um, at the start of the shale boom, um, Pennsylvania kept information secret for a period of five years. And given that this was um, uh, the typical length of a, of a lease, that's basically like keeping it secret forever in the, in the setup of the model. Neighboring uh, Ohio kept inf uh, disclosed information, so actually disclosed uh, all the information after six months to rivals, and West Virginia disclosed information after one year. Um, California discloses it after two years. And so originally our idea was, well, surely the theory literature must have some prediction about which of these is best. Uh, that's how we came across this Hendrickson Covenant paper. And, um, and so it turns out that paper, um, you know, or the existing theory literature was useful for telling us how does uh, an environment with full disclosure compare to what a planner would do, but hadn't yet worked out. Let's say you can't do the planner. You have this decentralized uh, world. Do you know what disclosure policy is optimal in that environment? And so that's what we worked out in the paper. Um, but the motivation was, you know, who got it right at the start of the shale boom? Um, it was, uh, was it West Virginia or Pennsylvania? And, you know, like lots of things in theory that are sort of interesting, um, the uh, answer when we worked out this two-period model, um, how do firms behave as a function of uh, the disclosure policy, it wasn't obvious. You need to know more about the problem in order to say who was right, West Virginia or Pennsylvania. Um, one thing we worked out um, that we sort of could say in stark terms is if you could do any disclosure policy, so the regular the regulator can set the disclosure at you know 10% returns, 20%, any, any continuous number, then the optimal policy is never to keep all information secret. Okay, so Pennsylvania's extreme policy of keep the information secret basically forever, that can never be the best in an unconstrained world. Okay, uh, when we look out in the real world, um, it is the case that we only ever see the extremes. We see firm, we see states or uh, governments um, either keeping information secret forever or disclosing it basically immediately, disclosing all of it. And so policymakers appear to be maybe constrained um, politically or you know, um, just uh, in terms of what they're logistically able to implement to these extremes of you can either reveal perfect information, full disclosure, or you can keep it secret. And in that world, you can't say which is better without knowing more about the primitives of the problem, which basically for, you know, not to use too much jargon, you want to know how good our firm's um, signals about what the raw quality is, um, what is the actual distribution of, of investment outcomes, like are wells typically good or bad, and how costly is it to drill. And if you know those three ingredients, we can tell you uh, which is best. Uh, revealing all the information or keeping it secret. And so we have some con theoretical conditions in the paper to characterize that. And we take that to the real world where we see these neighboring states on top of, for people who don't know, 
geography of the United States. Uh, Ohio, West Virginia, and Pennsylvania are right next to each other. They share a remarkably um, like a regular shaped uh, border, and they overlie the two, two of the most active gas plays in the United States, the Utica and the Marcellus, uh, during the shale boom. So it was like a nice empirical environment to then go try to estimate this model. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about this empirical environment? You have well-leveled data in West Virginia and Pennsylvania along the border there. Yes. What, how do you guys construct your sample, and what information do you use? Okay, good. So this was also, I think, I don't know, people might find this interesting about the evolution of this project. So we had this idea that these states that are right next to each other, they have the same shale formation, uh, they have different disclosure policies, and um, what's the big problem in studying sort of policy in an oil and gas uh, setting? It's that, like, oil and gas quality, uh, resource quality, varies a lot across space, okay? So I don't want to compare drilling behavior in Massachusetts to Texas because they're, you know, they're way different investment opportunities. Um, so we thought this was a good case to study because we thought, especially if we zoomed right along the border, um, the underlying shale quality and, importantly for our model, you know, in um, uh, exploration and production companies' beliefs about that quality are probably the same. So this seems like a good environment to basically you know, conceptually go right to the border. Some get information, some don't. We can see, do, do you know, does Pennsylvania, um, you know, drill faster because they're not going to be able to see this information. Okay, so we do that in the paper as a sort of um, diagnostic, but this was the original idea for the paper, was um, some sort of cross-border comparison where we find sets of, um, of leases so another thing, piece of information we have is we so you know, great oil and gas data in the United States. We know um, exactly where leases are, so opportunity rights uh, to drill. We know uh, who owns them and when they started and how long they are. And then if someone invests, we see exactly when that is, and then we see the exact production. So those are the ingredients that we're going to take uh, to our empirics. Um, and so like again, conceptually, we were just going to do this comparison right on either side of the border and see. Uh, our theoretical model predicts that um, uh, gives us some conditions that Pennsylvania should drill faster. Um, and we have this prediction in the paper that if we see them not only drill faster, but drill more wells total, our theory tells us that that investment program should be less efficient. So it should be actually socially uh, worse and West Virginia would have been better. If the opposite is true, uh, it becomes a bit more complicated. Um, but so when we start, we got all this data, we wrote this model, we started to do this. It turns out that, uh, as I'm sure in Canada, um, it, it, you know, in the U.S., lots of things change at state borders. And one thing we didn't appreciate um, initially when we started the project was that a very important thing that changes at the state border uh, along West Virginia, Pennsylvania, is that West, uh, West Virginia also imposes a 5% tax on output, whereas Pennsylvania doesn't. This is important for our model because the prediction we have is, well, Pennsylvania should drill more and drill faster, but that's also kind of what we would see um, if they had lower taxes, okay? So we have this part of the paper where we show when you look on either side of the border that indeed Pennsylvania does drill more and indeed that drilling does not seem to be very productive compared to West Virginia. Uh, so it's consistent with our model, but uh, we were sort of worried at this point that it was confounded. There were possible other explan explanations. And so that's why we have this whole part of the paper where we instead try to do what's called like a um, structural econometric um, um, you know, uh, approach where we basically write down an empirical model that exactly matches our theoretical uh, model. 
And so the part you're talking about initially is this sort of reduced form yeah. cross-sectional analysis where yeah. you compare West Virginia to Pennsylvania. Yeah. Uh, I have sort of two questions on this. Sure. One is in Canada, yeah. the crown, which means the government, owns yeah. the vast majority yeah. of mineral leases. That's not the case in yes. this region, is it? No, this is a very, very important thing. Um, so Tom and I have another paper, which I want to uh, plug. It's called uh, Relinquishing Riches. It's available on my website. Um, and um, and so like in the United States, which I, I did not appreciate, you know, until I started <laughs> looking at what happens other places, I thought it was like this everywhere. In the US, you know, when I bought my house, I didn't just buy the surface rights. I actually bought the right to any minerals underneath uh, my house. And that's the uh, case in um, the vast majority of the United States. So 75% of uh, the minerals in the United States are owned by individuals, not by, uh, you know, the crown, for example. Um, and so that is actually very unique to the U.S. I was under the impression maybe there were some parts of Canada that where this was possible. So there are some private okay. held mineral rights in Canada, but the majority yeah. are held by the crown. Yeah, it's very strange. So yeah. it's the opposite in the U.S. Yeah. The only time, uh, you know, the state owns it is, uh, you know, state lands and yeah. things like this. Um, and so uh, this creates a very... Um, very decentralized uh, oil and gas market. So you oftentimes will have people um, with, uh, you know, land overlying the same sort of drilling opportunity, um, controlled by very different uh, interests. Some actors are very good at leasing, some actors are very slow, some are very patient, um, and they all get to sign a lease with who is gonna be able to explore on their land. Some pick Exxon, some pick Chesapeake, things like this. And so this is actually uh, what allows in the U.S. it to be very, very common for separate firms to end up owning adjacent investment opportunities when we know theoretically it would be more efficient if one had them. Um, and so Tom and I, uh, to plug our other paper, we take advantage of um, a uh, cool natural experiment in Texas where so Texas was once part of Spain and then Mexico. And for reasons that have to do with when land was privatized uh, and became part of Texas hundreds of years ago, uh, we have adjacent parcels that during the recent shale boom in Texas, some are owned by the state and uh, manage what we have some theory for efficiently. Uh, they, are, they allocate uh, drilling rights via auction. Some are, uh, the rest are owned by just this wild west, decentralized, every homeowner picks a lessor, uh, picks a lessee. Um, and so we show uh, massive returns to sort of, um, or massive losses from this decentralized allocation in Texas. Yes. Sorry, it's just from these additional friction from having to sign all these bilateral deals. Um, in that paper, uh, the, the so the paper is actually about when you want to sign a lease, how should you pick who should get that lease? And um, we have some theory again on what's best. And so one uh, mechanism that people recently won the Nobel Prize for advocating for is an auction, right? So there are a bunch of companies, they want to lease your land. You know, they know a lot more about the oil than you do. How do you get the most for what's yours in this environment where they have better information? You could hold an auction, okay? Again, we're not theorists. We thought that there was a clear theory answer. Um, there are some papers um, by, for example, Bulow and Klumper have two papers in the American Economic Review, which um, explore whether some sort of sequential negotiating mechanism could do better. Um, but um, we don't think uh, in the real world, most lessors in the US, which you should think about, these are, these are just you know, ranchers who are doing something else, um, but they happen to own a lot of minerals. 
Um, we don't think that these actors are necessarily so sophisticated, and we think that they're maybe, um, you know, just giving their rights to the first person who knocks on their door. So we have survey evidence in Pennsylvania that I think 80 or 85% of people who signed shale leases only talk to one company. Okay, so we might suspect that that company has better information. Um, they sort of apply some strong tactics to get you to sign on the dotted line. And so you're not doing as well um, as, as you, know, you would if you held an auction. And in this paper, using this natural experiment, we find that um, when uh, the mineral owner uh, holds an auction, they make, uh, I think, 40 or 50% more money. And then a cool sort of second thing we test is the theory literature suggests auctions are not just um, better at getting the seller money, they're allocatively efficient. So they're gonna do a good job assigning it to the oil company who is gonna use it most efficiently. And we find big returns on the order of 40% more production as well. And so that's coming strictly from using a good mechanism to pick who drills your land versus a bad mechanism. And so if we come back to this less allocatively efficient jurisdiction, yeah. you know, Pennsylvania versus totally. West Virginia, and we look at these reduced form results, what are the magnitudes you're finding? These magnitudes, I mean, so the reduced form results, um, let me just tell you, uh, you know, what we're finding in terms of like, um, ignore any confounders, right? So we can compare at the bottom, at the border. Um, prior at the, you know, in the early years of the shale boom, uh, we find that Pennsylvania, where uh, exploration and production companies know that if they wait, they're not going to be able to see their rivals' outcomes. Um, so they have less returns from waiting and free riding. Um, we see that they drill twice as many wells, and they drill them twice, you know, they drill them much earlier. Um, so early wells, I think, are over 100% um, uh, larger uh, than late wells in Pennsylvania. So you should think they, they're drilling uh, you know, twice as many wells. Total, they only get 20% more output. Now, if you're investing, you're spending twice as much on investment, but you're only getting 20% more, that is suggestive of that investment program being less efficient. Now, to actually sort of, uh, you know, turn that into profits, we need to know what the costs are and things like that. And that's something we do in the second part of the paper. And so let's talk about that structural part of the paper. Yeah. And this is where you're trying to get at profits. You're trying to account for that tax. Yeah. How do you set up this structural model? Great. So um, the idea is we are going to first, so we've got to make some assumptions. Uh, so the, you know, to, you, it seems like it's okay if people are on board with the language here of like reduced form. The idea of reduced form is we're just going to, um, we're not going to say that our econometric model maps one-to-one -one into some theoretical model. We are just going to say we know the outcome we're interested in. How many more wells do you get as a function of some natural variation, which in our case is disclosure policy. In uh, the econometric model, uh, we are going to actually say the model we estimate is the model we think people are playing in the real world. And as a result, the parameters we estimate have a direct economic interpretation. Uh, the first ingredient of that model is we're going to write down what is the profit function that oil and um, gas companies uh, use when they decide whether or not they want to invest. The ingredients are this are of this are we need to know um, how much output do you get. That's going to be um, easy for us. We observe output at the well level, but firms have expectation over that. But when you drill, you get uh, some amount of output. We see that, so we have that. Um, then we're going to multiply that by um, how uh, much money do you get for your output. We take wellhead prices from exactly that part of, uh, of, the, re of the region. This is primarily gas, right? So we know sort of how much you get per, uh, per million cubic feet. Um, these uh, um, 
mineral, you know, these these exploration and production companies uh, like like Exxon, um, in order to get the rights to drill, they pay the landowner some money up front in the forms of a, in the form of a bonus. But um, one of the things that you know other people have work on um, have, have done work on to show uh, they don't just um, they don't just have to pay money for uh, for an up, upfront right to, uh, to drill. Uh, they give uh, the person who owns the minerals a share in profits through a royalty payment. Okay, so it's on the order of 20% of the revenue they get gets transferred to the landowner. And so from Exxon's perspective, when they're deciding if they want to drill, they discount their revenue by 20%. And then here's where the tax comes in. We're going to subtract tax, uh, tax payments as well. In West Virginia, it's 5%. In Pennsylvania, there's none. Okay, so I think basically the point is that we know, we assume we know the ingredients of revenue, which is how much did you get? Um, in terms of oil or, or gas, how much do you get per unit of gas on the market minus what you have to give to the state and what you have to give to landowners? That's your revenue. The thing that we don't know from our reduced form analysis is how much that costs you. And so we assume that there is some common by state cost of drilling a well. And that's going to be a parameter we're going to look for in our estimation. And then your, uh, so that's like our profit function. And then now investors are going to solve the game exactly like I set up. Um, they're going to know their profit function. They're going to get some signal, some belief about what they think they will get if they drill. And then based on that, they're going to um, make a, a decision about whether or not it's, it, it's worth drilling. Okay, um, They're going to uh, not just do this um, in isolation. They're going to um, decide, um, should I drill given my signal? Um, given my signal, what is the likely uh, behavior of my rival? Meaning if I wait, are they likely to drill and I could learn something? And then if both of us wait and we end up in the second period, what's my likelihood I would drill in the second period? So basically the thing to take away from this is we just take our, um, our uh, theoretical model and we build it into our econometric estimation where the things we need to know in order to solve the outcome of our theory are how much does it cost to drill? How much do you sort of care about good versus bad wells, which we get through revenue? And what are your beliefs about that? So the other thing we're looking for is what, is it, what does it look like the distribution of firms' beliefs about a given opportunity are? And so we're able to take this to the data in both states and we recover basically how costly is it to drill in Pennsylvania? How costly is it to drill in West Virginia? Uh, and what are the sort of beliefs about those opportunities? And so how costly is it to drill in Pennsylvania okay. and Good. West Virginia? So this is the part of the paper where like, we have two sort of tests. Like the thing about structural econometrics is, um, you know, you can write down a model and you can estimate it, but your estimates, um, you know, are only right to the extent your model is right. So it's always this sort of like, how do you know if your model is good or not in this environment? And so we have two sort of things that make us feel um, somewhat confident. Um, we didn't impose any structure on what the cost should be. We just said, find some latent, um, some you know, unknown to the econometrician cost um, that rationalizes why people explored the way they did in these states. And we estimate well costs on the order of four to five million dollars, which when we go look at financials uh, from uh, firms who are drilling in this time, uh, in this region, is actually really in line with that. Okay, so that makes us feel like the fixed costs we're getting, a four to five, a three to four, a four to five million dollars are uh, are reasonable. Um, I can talk about the second test if that's sure. Yeah. Okay. Go great. Ahead, yeah. So then the other thing we do, this may be a bit hard to convey on the podcast, but basically, um, 
in Pennsylvania, we assume that firms, when they're making this decision, they, they're, they know uh, that they're in an environment where uh, they have complete secrecy. So the game they're playing is one of complete secrecy. In West Virginia, we're assuming that uh, you know, investors, when they make a decision to invest, they know that if they wait, they will learn their rivals' outcomes perfectly um, in the second period, okay? Um, those two sort of games have different structural sort of you know, functions that we would, we would estimate off of. And so we assume that West Virginia is playing uh, one of, full, disclo of um, full disclosure because that's what the law says. We can uh, do the opposite and we can sort of estimate the model assuming an incorrect information structure in each state. So we don't know if our model's right, uh, but we can say when we estimate the model that we think matches the policy in Pennsylvania, does that actually fit the data better than the alternative model where we assume they had Pennsylvania's law? I mean, they had, uh, you know, they had the opposite. They had uh, a policy of full disclosure. And so we do that in Pennsylvania, and then we do that in West Virginia. And in each state, basically the likelihood of the data uh, is, lar is higher um, under the correct information policy. So that's the second test uh, for people who um, are sort of in the weeds on this stuff. This is a, a Vuong test. There's a, a, a nice uh, old econometric uh, paper that shows you how you could figure out which structural model um, matches the data better by comparing the likelihood of two, two models. And so the nice advantage of doing this structural approach is that you can run a bunch of counterfactuals. Yes. So you guys proceed to do that. Yeah. Which counterfactuals do you guys examine and what do you find? Okay. Great. So um, remember, we had this border comparison that we could easily do in the reduced form, which is um, just um, is complete secrecy um, better or worse than full disclosure? Um, we were going to make that comparison because uh, that's what we had in the data. Um, once we've estimated the model, we can actually do what our theory says we might want to do. And we could consider any disclosure policy, including these two extremes, and we could figure out what would be the optimal in the sense that it maximizes surplus disclosure policy. Um, we do this and we have some nice figures in the paper that shows that um, the sort of um, pattern of welfare with respect to disclosure matches our theory. But uh, having set up that we thought it could be anywhere, it's interesting that in both cases, it ends up being that full disclosure is the optimal policy. Um, and so we find that um, uh, had Pennsylvania um, done uh, what West Virginia did uh, and fully disclosed, um, their uh, well outcomes to, to rivals uh, at the start of the shale boom. Um, we, we have estimates that um, this would have led to, I think, uh, 50 to you know, over 100% more surplus. Um, so the optimal policy was actually full disclosure. So I think that's a fascinating takeaway that you know, if we're looking at policy design, we're better off, at least in this context, providing more information than less. Yes. Yeah, and I think like again, it's not that there isn't free riding. Uh, we show that delay is uh, there is delay uh, when you disclose information. It's just that um, the gains from sharing information, right? So like sometimes I will be next to uh, to you, and you will have a very marginal signal, and you'll be unsure if you're going to drill. Um, if I drill and it turns out to be awesome and you can see that, that is worth a lot socially. And again, if, I, if you have a slightly uh, higher signal um, and you're just on the margin where you think drilling is worth it, if I drill uh, first and you can see that it's actually terrible, that saves you in our case four to five million dollars. And so the gains from sort of making better investment decisions 
with all the information that we have socially um, are larger than the costs of maybe drilling is going to be slower and sometimes we won't drill. So, uh, you know, it's not to say there's no free riding. It's just the medicine is worse, uh, is worse uh, than the, the sort of symptom here. So what's next for research, either into the shale boom or into information externalities? Uh, for us? For you or... Have any papers come out since you guys have finished this draft? I know it's hot off the presses. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll plug um, a related paper, which is actually before us, um, but is, is sort of, you know, in the um, review process now, which is Charles Hodgson, um, who is a uh, professor of economics at Yale. And so he asks a related um, uh, question, which is we ask... Um, the regulator is going to collect oil and gas information all the time, pretty much, for safety and tax reasons. Uh, we ask, how much information should it reveal to rivals? Um, and we do it in this two-period model for attractability. Um, Charles asks uh, a, a sort of separate question, which is, let's say the regulator is going to eventually fully disclose information. He asks, when should they reveal it? Um, and he does it in the context of uh, the North Sea. And so North Sea is basically the opposite of uh, Pennsylvania. You've got a bunch of uh, regularly spaced, predefined drilling opportunities. They are allocated in a way that, according to his paper, um, has some properties that are close to random. And um, at the time of his paper, um, the uh, UK government was um, disclosing investment outcomes after five years. He estimates a model and simulates counterfactuals, you know, similar exercise to us. He estimates a structural model, and he finds that uh, surplus would be maximized at a, a disclosure policy that is basically half that long, so after two and a half years. So again, it's consistent with uh, the, you know, totally different question. This is his is when versus what, but the idea that maybe we're shrouding too much information in oil and gas. My guest today has been Richard Sweeney. Rich, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thanks a lot. It's been fun. Thanks. For listening to the Ergs and Equilibrium podcast. For more information, you can visit ergsandequilibrium.ca. For any questions or comments, you can email bshifley at ivy.ca. That's B S C H A U F E L E at ivy.ca. Have a great day.